This is the Passive Real Estate Podcast, the premier podcast for passive real estate investors. Matt Jones interviews experienced passive investors who share their industry secrets and active investors who show you different ways to invest passively. Welcome back. I'm Matt Jones. And today on the Passive Real Estate Podcast, I welcome Kelvin Roberts. Welcome, Kelvin. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Matt. It's my honor and pleasure. Excellent. Uh, what would you like the audience to know about yourself? I am a high energy, highly motivated, experienced professional insurance broker. I go absolutely bonkers for anything with four walls. We love commercial real estate. We're active in 41 states, insure around 18,000 apartments throughout the country, and bring the highest levels of due diligence and creativity to all the cases we take on. Fantastic. And what kind of deals do you uh, do uh, through your uh, brokerage? So anything from smaller, newer, growing investors to large syndicated accounts with thousands of doors and multiple markets and a litany of different asset classes. Multifamily is our bread and butter, but just about any kind of real estate endeavor we go, we take active interest in. Nice. So anything with four walls is kind of my go-to description. <laughs> Fantastic. And is it the same with your insurance uh, agency? Yes, sir. So it's on the real estate investor side for myself, I, I'm actively chomping at the bit and hoping to jump into the game early next year. My initial thought is as a young man to build the pseudo W-2. I, I pay myself as a W-2 just to make it easier when I get to that point to obtain financing on properties. But I, I think it's important to invest in what you know. And what I've known throughout my entire adult life is retail property and casualty insurance. So the idea was to build a cash flow stream that would enable me to then diversify, get into real estate, and hopefully limit my tax exposure the fullest extent possible. That's one of the largest enticing benefits of investing in commercial real estate for myself personally. So I, I would actively like to jump into the real estate game late this year, early next year. It's getting pretty close. Fantastic. I mean, you've been supporting real estate investors all this while, so uh, might as well join where the money is. Uh, so you are an expert with insurance when it comes to uh, real estate deals. What do limited partners, when they're investing into real estate, what do they need to know about insurance? It's important that when you're you're looking at investing into a deal as a limited sponsor or as a limited partner, that the numbers are plausible and not just picked out of a hat in terms of, you know, this is what we want the insurance to cost versus this is what we genuinely believe our pricing might come in at. I, I see a, a boatload of deals where, and I'll give an anecdotal example. I have a client who is a very nice and very diligent deal sponsor based in Michigan. And she was looking at a well over a hundred unit apartment complex in Arkansas couple weeks ago and they put in a letter of intent it didn't end up going under contract i helped to kill that deal early before it would cost them any money but they're telling me that the seller is reporting that they're paying around fifty thousand dollars a year for this hundred and it's called 20 unit apartment complex in southwest arkansas and i'm looking at the square footage of the entire apartment complex and i can pencil in with the 
approximate total insurable value range. So what the the sum of all the link coverages might equal out to. And from there, it's a pretty simple formula to determine what the approximate expected premium range might come in at or something like that. Exposure times rate equals premium. So if our exposure is, let's call it $12 million for the low end of what we can enter into the sum of all building limits on the policy. Well, then your other variable is the rate, which is the premium per $100 in coverage that the insurance company is assessing to provide property insurance coverage. So if your exposure is maybe 12 million and your rate is anywhere between 50 and 70 cents, there's no plausible scenario where the some aggregated premium is anything south of about maybe 65, 70,000, and that's in a best case scenario. So if the seller is reporting that they're paying drastically below where the market is at, how are they doing that? Well, maybe they have access to an exclusive niche insurance product, which is rating well below the market. I suppose that's possible. But it's far more likely that perhaps they've owned the property for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and they're working with an insurance broker who might be very nice, might be very responsive, might get them very good premiums that are attractive, but the building limit is well below the minimum insurance to value requirements. That would prevent what's called co-insurance penalty, which is where the insurance company reduces your claim settlement proportional to the amount that you are insured below the minimums that will permit. And the reason they'll do that is, you know, you, you think about most claims, they're not going to be a total loss where a building burns to the ground. It's going to be the $100,000 fire, the $75,000 roof replacement, the $200,000 water damage, you know, the small to medium severity, but much higher frequency flavor of loss. And if you're an insurance company and your rates are based around getting at or near the full and triple value of the property. And you're not able to adequately, you know, obtain premium for the yeah. higher end of the loss, like the total loss scenario. You have a concentration of risk in your books. So you're then not getting an appropriate rate. That's where the co-insurance penalty comes into play. Insurance companies will penalize you above and beyond not having sufficient limit to rebuild due to that co-insurance penalty. So in this deal, she reported that the seller is saying, oh, we're paying around 50000 The only way that that is possible is if that there's some building limit, the total insurable value is drastically below the minimums that are required to prevent that co-insurance penalty. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, so how can a, you know, just your regular passive investor determine whether or not the insurance that the sponsor is saying, uh, you know, the coverage uh, premium is accurate for, for that property in that market? So one of the key things I would ask is what is the total insurable value? So that's the sum of all building limits on the policy. Divide that by the total number of square feet on the property. Maybe it comes out to $150 a square foot insurance to value. Well, as long as that figure is within 80% or greater of what it would actually cost to rebuild, 
in most scenarios where you have a coinsurance condition on the policy? Well, I, I would be inclined to say it's probably adequately insured then. But if you determine that maybe the insurance to value is 90 a square foot or 70 a square foot, then start asking her questions like, okay, can I see a copy of the quote? Is there a coinsurance condition? That's the most common pitfall I see. I'll give a, another anecdote. I work with a, it's a fairly large syndication based out of the, one of the big three cities in Texas. They invest in Houston, Dallas, Austin. Those are their three, four markets. They have somewhere around 7,000 doors in those markets. And they came to me about a month ago because they are about to begin developing a brand new 80-ish unit apartment complex in one of those cities. And they asked for a builder's risk quote. And I said, great, absolutely. You'd be more than happy to. And I provide a quote for the builder's risk. And I also provide a quote for the general liability insurance because if you're raising $5 million in investor capital to build an apartment complex, you should probably have liability insurance on it. You know, I, I think back to when I was 12 years old, we would ride bikes all around the neighborhood and play around in the concrete foundations being poured for new residential builds. What if some bored kid like that trespasses onto this property and falls into the basement, cracks their head and family brings suit? Well, you don't own an apartment complex anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I bid both the builder's risk for the property and the general liability for their liability concerns. And my pricing for the general liability was very competitive. It was around just under $11,000 per year, which given the scale of the account, and nature of the ongoing construction is pretty darn competitive. I mean, I, I went out to 25 insurance companies. I coordinated a farm wrestling expedition amongst them to obtain the most competitive pricing possible. And they said, oh, well, thanks for the builder's risk quote. This looks good. But on the general liability, we're all set. We don't need that. Here we have it. I said, interesting. Can I see a copy of the quote of the policy? And they never responded. They were more than happy to share copies of the competing builder's risk quotes, but never shared anything for the liability. Do I doubt that they have liability insurance today? No, I bet they probably do. Is it likely for the real estate syndication rated as a maybe a real estate brokerage or a, just a generic real estate firm with no coverage for ongoing construction activities? Probably if there's a drastic variance in the pricing. You know, if I'm coming in at 11,000 a year and they're paying maybe $700 a year right now, their coverage is most likely not doing all that much for them here. All right. And then let's switch uh, tracks to talk about the trends with insurance. Uh, you know, I know insurance costs have changed over the past few years, especially in you know certain areas of the country with extreme weather situations. Uh, you know, how do you think insurance coverage will change over the coming few years? So it's it's all bad news for at least the short to medium term foreseeable future, and the largest catalyst for premium variance over this past twelve months. You know, last year, really stems from the diminishing availability of reinsurance capital. And reinsurance is, put it 
simply insurance for insurance companies that helps them to limit their exposure, transfers some of the risk off of their balance sheets. You know, if you're a, maybe a small regional insurance company writing in three states. For the purpose of not being required to maintain such a large reserves, fairly liquid capital, you know, maybe you want to put your reserves into less liquid, but better performing, higher yielding asset classes. Reinsurance enables more efficient use of capital throughout the entire risk capital stack. But ironically, because of the increasing interest rates that we're seeing across the board, that's led to a just a, a lesser, a, a reduced need for capital to seek out the more risky investment classes like free insurance. You know, if you can get 6% or 7% bonds, you really want to try to get 9% from investing in Florida catastrophic property insurance? Probably not. So approximately 30% of the capital that was in free insurance markets two years ago, around $225 billion, has exited reinsurance. So there's a, a greater total exposure across primary insurers, like maybe State Farm or Liberty Mutual or Allstate, but they have less reinsurance capital available to absorb those losses. So that's really been the, the biggest catalyst for change over this past year. You know, it's uh, put this way. Nationwide insurance, they're one of the big writers for multifamily in many markets. They completely exited habitational multifamily insurance on June 30th. The reason that they pulled out on June 30th is, at least based on what I speculate, they couldn't obtain sufficient reinsurance cover at a price that they could absorb and price into their product. Reinsurance renews on July 1st and January 1st each year. It's a six-month treaty, typically. So for them to pull out on June 30th suggests that they probably couldn't get the reinsurance covered that they need to continue writing habitation in the business. Yeah, and I know uh, some, you know, a few insurance carriers have pulled out of uh, Florida, for example, and um, so that means there's fewer options for getting coverage for your investment properties in Florida. Um, do you think that's going to continue to happen where more insurance carriers are going to uh, pull out of uh, Florida and maybe other places that tend to be hard hit with these extreme weather events? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're trending in a, a bad direction right now on property, especially in any of the cat exposed markets like Florida, or the U.S. Southeast or parts of the Western United States with, you know, wildfire risk or even parts of like the I-75 corridor in lower Midwest where we have fairly substantive hail, catastrophic loss risk. I suspect that, and this is speculation, but it's based on a educated and informed hunch that we'll see something comparable to the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act of 2002, which was passed by Congress as a direct response to the September 11th tax attacks, which led to, I believe, three or four insurance companies becoming insolvent not just from the property loss, but also the cascading spider web of liability that sued. You know, you have the building tenants suing the property manager, who's suing the contractors, who are suing the material supply vendors, and just turned into a very litigious, ugly war against all. 
Well, many commercial loans require terrorism coverage. And if you don't provide terror coverage, you could then go into default on the loan. Congress doesn't want that to happen. A lot of Congress critters own commercial real estate and have a personal vested interest in seeing continued availability of terror cover. So Congress passed the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act of 2002, which essentially subsidizes the cost of providing terror cover. Private industry acts as a distribution vehicle, but 85% of any covered losses involving terrorism are reinsured by the U.S. federal government. I suspect that to keep the wheels turning and to kick the can another 20 or 30 years, the most effective way forward is for the U.S. federal government to subsidize the cost of gas dropping property reinsurance. I think that that will make it so that markets like Florida and the Gulf Coast, really any of the gas-exposed markets in the United States, do not become unlendable. Therefore, the economy begins to atrophy and die. I mean, you, you think about the lifeblood of the United States economy and what really expands the money supply, it's new debt taken out. So if somebody is not able to, at an effective price, obtain insurance coverage in Florida, for example, well, they're gonna start looking other places. The United States federal government has a vested interest in not allowing the economy in those places to wither away. You know, what What costs the government more? Maybe subsidizing $50 billion in property catastrophic loss each year, or attempting to pull the United States economy out of a depression or worse, should those markets begin to substantively become impacted by the increasing turbulence involving property insurance. And I, I know that that's a, it's a suggestion that a lot of people probably don't like having the federal government get involved with anything like that. I mean, believe you me, I don't love it myself, but I think it's probably the most likely thing to happen over the next five years to keep the wheels turning. And I, you know, I tend not to get too deep into politics on the podcast, but uh, you know, I think we all know that the United States is pretty divided with you know politically uh, and the the government as well. It, you know, if the government does not have some kind of support with insurance coverage, are, are you saying now that you're you're thinking things might start to spiral downwards with our economy? I think it's going to spill over into the real economy sooner rather than later. Mm. It troubles me greatly. <laughs> I look at it this way. I'm already hearing anecdotal stories of people in Florida, for example, putting their condo or home up for sale and selling it at a loss because they cannot continue to live there. It's become too expensive. It is starting to produce real world pain for a lot of people. So that's where, even though I don't love the idea of having the federal government subsidize any cost like that it's probably the least painful path forward for the u.s economy as a whole you know you, you look at it from a cost of doing business perspective what costs the government more money pumping 50 billion dollars into providing property reinsurance or losing out on hundreds of billions in tax roll revenue from those markets as the economy begins to atrophy and die due to no 
new loans being originated, taken out in those markets. No debt means that the economy dries up. Yeah, very uh, doom and gloom here. Yep. But, uh, <laughs> so uh, let's say uh, this doom and gloom doesn't happen. And we'll still have increasing insurance costs, I think, in the near future, at least. Uh, how do you think that's going to impact real estate as a whole? I wouldn't be surprised to see. And it, it does vary a bit depending on which market you're active in or that we're looking at. But it's already beginning to affect valuations fairly sizably. I mean, I, I've killed probably 40 or 50, 40 places just this year alone, where a client comes to me and says, hey, we're looking at, you know, possibly putting in a letter of intent on this property in Tampa. Can you indicate what you think the premium might be to get this under contract? I'll give them a low end, a high end range based on total insurable value times the rate range it could plausibly come in at. And they come back to me and say, oh, well, the seller says that they're paying half that. This deal doesn't work anymore. Oh, well, the seller should adjust their valuations accordingly if they're insistent on selling the property. Very good. All right. Um, now, I uh, so in your insurance brokerage, so what exactly is your role? Are, are you an actual broker where you're, you're giving people quotes like you, you mentioned, or, or are there other things you do as well? So I'm the principal of Falcon Insurance Agency of Michigan. We have a team of seven today. I do also wear the producer insurance broker hat. And really it comes down to I most multifamily accounts I still retain, don't pass off to my team. But sometimes if it's, you know, maybe a better fit for Adam or Kylie or Sylvia. Maybe I'll introduce you to them and still behind the scenes work with them closely to make sure that's placed diligently and done the way that I would have done it personally. But it's like anything where eventually you need to delegate where appropriate. So I, I do actively wear the insurance broker hat most days. But, okay. You know, we, we keep pretty busy. <laughs> Very good. And then are you primarily in communication with uh, active uh, syndication sponsors or, or do you also do some communications with limited partners as well? well? I'm more than happy to work with the limited partners. And occasionally I will have the LP come to me and say, hey, here's the deal that we're invested in as LPs, but we're one of the largest LPs in the deal. So we hold some clout with the sponsor and would be more than happy to provide an introduction to you to the deal sponsor if you're able to come in with a attractively priced insurance quote. You know, we, we think that these numbers are exorbitant and want to see what you can do for us. I do have those communications fairly regularly as well. I work with a, uh, it's a publicly traded REIT based in Charlotte, just on their multifamily team, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and they're invested into I think like 15 total deals in the form of a, it's a JV where they are the limited partner you know, not actively operating the property day to day, but behind the scenes, they're running their own underwriting each year to make sure that they want to stay in the deal and don't want to sell their state to limit the exposure they have. And they'll come to me and say, hey, here are the numbers that we're at. Do you think that you can compete against these or do you can look about right where the market's at right now? And sometimes they say, yeah, you know, that 
is unfortunately market rate in 2023. It's a wild time to be in multifamily insurance. But other times I say, oh, well, actually that Houston 135 unit apartment complex, I think I can come in about 40% lower than paying today for reasons X, Y, and Z. So I, I'm more than happy to talk with full, you know, limited partners as well as the sponsor. So, so thinking of all the different real estate investments that you've been involved with through the insurance side, uh, what's a problem that you encountered with one of them and how was it handled? One of the biggest problems I run into very frequently is that co-insurance penalty I briefly touched on. It's, I, I read a statistic at the end of 2022, which just based on my own experiences, is pretty on the money, that 60% of commercial real estate is underinsured by 40% or more. So it's 40% below the actual cost to rebuild or replace or greater. And co-insurance penalty, it's one of those things that isn't talked about much until the loss happens and the client gets burned through no fault of their own. You know, I, I don't expect someone who doesn't hold the insurance producer license to be particularly knowledgeable about co-insurance penalty. It's, I don't want to say it's an insurance company gotcha, because it's not intended from the insurance company side to cheat people out of a fair claim settlement. They just aren't getting a premium that commensurates the risk. And to make their balance sheet more stable, it really leaves them no choice but to apply a co-insurance penalty in, in scenarios where it's drastically underreported as far as the billing values on the policy. And I find that most investors I work with, when I sh show them the specific policy language that would trigger the co-insurance penalty, and I, I make a case for why I believe the billing limit they have today is just drastically not sufficient to prevent this, most are agreeable that that's a problem that needs to be fixed quickly. I don't always make a successful case to hold my investor clients, unfortunately. And in that scenario, I, I typically just end up, you know, going out on the deal until, unfortunately, the bad thing happens. And then I can say, you know, I can't fix what happened in the past, but I can prevent this from happening to you again in the future by writing it with sufficient limits. But it's something that I run into on the vast majority of policies that we review. It, the reason I ask for declaration pages before I start working on an account isn't because I'm doing what I, I think most clients believe insurance brokers ask for that for, so we can see the premium they're paying and maybe come in five or 10% below that, almost like a, like a haggling type thing. Not just that isn't the motivation for it. It's, I want to compete on rate, the objective criteria that measures and analyzes relative competitiveness between insurance companies. Often that translates to competing on the premium, the total cost to you, the insured, not always, but I, I want to see how the policy is configured today so I can call out inadequate coverages proactively you know, you're not going to compete on premium against a policy that is underinsured by 50% or more if you're trying to write it the right way with 80% or greater insurance value. 
Okay, makes sense. Okay, as uh, next step is we're going to go into a speed round, but before we start, some of these questions are are geared towards uh, about passive investing, and of course, you're going to get into the game of investing yourself, but you've been uh, you know in in real estate insurance for quite a number of years now, so um, it, uh, that's a, a good preemptive. But okay, are you ready for a speed round? Let's do it. What's your favorite part about passive real estate investing? It's the the unique value that is brought by deal sponsors in terms of allowing people who maybe don't have the time or connections or experience to operate and own a you know property 100%. So somebody who's a W2 worker Maybe they make good money and they're hoping to build up that retirement nest egg and otherwise just diversify away from their W-2 source of income. It enables someone like that who has a full-time job, 45 hours a week that they're committed to, to reap many of the benefits that come from owning real estate, but with a, a fraction of the hands-on involvement that is required of a full owner-operator. And what do you know now about real estate investing that you wish you knew when you first got started in the field? Truthfully, I, I wish I would have realized a couple things. My first regret is that I didn't start buying properties. As soon as I got my first insurance job, 2016, 2017, I would be very thankful to Bass Kelvin for, you know, biting the bullet, getting everything in place to really be a, have sufficient liquidity and just all of the ducks in a row so I could go on a buying spree in 2020 and 21 and early 22. I watched so many of my clients go from one property to five, six, $10 million assets under management over a 24, 36 month period. So I, I wish I, as a younger man, would have understood the value of getting in early and striking while the iron is hot in situations like, you know, the 2020, the 22 run that we saw. Well, I've heard That's it said awesome. that the, yeah, the best time to buy real estate was 10 years ago. The second best time is right now. So, <laughs> uh, what's a book that you can recommend to uh, other investors? So I have a, a curveball, the highest value business book I've ever read. Isn't really a, explicit business book. It's the autobiography of Gucci Mane, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, hip hop star and entertainer. And it, it just got me thinking about how people are able to seize opportunity wherever they find it. And I, I found that it's one of my favorite unintentional business books that I've ever read. Awesome. How can our listeners get in contact with you if they want to talk more about real estate insurance? Email works perfect. Phone is great. Facebook, LinkedIn, Carrier Pigeon, Smoke Signal. If you want to reach me, I'm obsessively available and always happy to hop on a call or otherwise provide value anywhere I can. All right. Uh, what is your the best email and phone number for you then? Kelvin, spelled like Kelvin Klein, C-A-L, B Victor, I, and Nancy at Falcon, like the bird. I-N-S, like insurance, agency.com. And our agency phone number is 734-887-9110. Great. 
Is there anything else you want to mention that we haven't covered yet? Start early when you're looking at what insurance might cost on a property that you're underwriting. And you don't necessarily have to get a full quote, but speak with your favorite insurance broker who is experienced and knowledgeable enough and has their finger on the market to know where rate is for most markets and asset classes so that you can at least dial in a reasonably accurate range to your underwriting. It's it's tough once you go under contract and you know have a EMD that you can't get back to see then that insurance is killing the deal. So work with someone who has their finger on the pulse of the market and obtain a reasonably accurate premium range early. That way you don't regret it and wish that you had later on once you're out money. Yep, good advice. All right, well, thank you so much, Calvin, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. You as well. Thank you very much for having me. Subscribe to this podcast to stay updated on new episodes. Leave a review to let us know that you enjoy the content. There are tons of ways to invest in real estate that you can explore by reading Matt Jones's book called Book About Real Estate. It summarizes many top real estate books all in one. Find it on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Google Play, or barnesandnoble.com. If you want to learn more about passive real estate investing, go to hawkwingcapital.com.